This morning we're turning again to John's Gospel, and we're going to pick up this morning at chapter 8, verse 12. If you're using a church Bible, that's on page 1073, or in the larger print Bibles, 1662. Now, if you were here last week and you were awake last week, which maybe doesn't necessarily go together, but if you were, you may wonder when you open your Bibles again, why we're moving straight on from chapter 7, verse 52, where we finished last time, to pick up today in chapter 8, verse 12. We might wonder, what about chapter 7, verse 53, through to chapter 8, verse 11? Well, the NIV is helpful here, and in fact, so is the ESV, if any of you happen to be using that translation. Because after chapter 7, verse 52, there is a note in the NIV which says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part, after John 7.36, John 21.25, Luke 21.38, or Luke 24.53. The ESV has an almost identical note. But what does that mean? Well, we have several thousand ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Those are housed in various libraries around the world. And the earliest of those manuscripts do not have John 7:53 through to 8:11. They go straight on from 7:52 to 8:12. Although the ancient manuscripts don't have the verse numbering that was added later on. In fact, the words of 7:52 to 8:11 don't appear in copies of the New Testament until the 5th century. And no Bible commentator deals with those verses until the 10th century. And what that means is, very simply, John 7:52 to 8:11 were not originally part of John's gospel. So why is the passage here at all? Well, obviously, it was doing the rounds. It was circulating. It was a passage in search of a home. And at some point, the scribes who made copies of the New Testament thought it was worth including somewhere. You can see that from the note in the NIV, which tells us when these verses do eventually appear, some scribe tried putting them a little earlier in John, someone else tried them at the end of John, some even tried putting them in Luke's gospel. And finally, the verses stuck at this point in John's gospel. And from then on, they were included at this point when new copies of the New Testament were made. But even then, the scribes made a note in the margin to indicate they weren't sure if it belonged there. Now, it's possible the passage is an accurate account of an incident in Jesus' life. I'm not going to pass judgment on that. But the key point for us today is we know the passage wasn't part of John's gospel when he wrote it. And in this series, it's John's gospel that we're interested in. The NIV has been doubly helpful in putting the section in small italics for us to show even if it is an accurate account, it really doesn't belong here. 
And when we look at what John actually wrote, it's very obvious that chapter 8, verse 12 flows straight on from chapter 7, verse 52. That's why this morning we're passing over that section in small italics. If you have any questions about what I've just tried to explain, do ask me afterwards. It's better to ask than to go away confused. But we are going to pick up and read from chapter 8, verse 12. The context here is the same as it was in chapter 7. Jesus is still in Jerusalem during the time of the festival of tabernacles. Chapter 8, verse 12 tells us, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. Even as He spoke, many believed in Him. This is God's Word. 
As I mentioned earlier, our passage opens with Jesus still at the Festival of Tabernacles. And last week, we heard about a special ceremony that took place during that festival, the water-drawing ceremony. A golden jug of water was carried from the pool of Siloam up to the temple in Jerusalem. The procession was accompanied with music and singing, and it ended with the water being poured out onto the altar. We saw how Jesus used the occasion of that ceremony to stand in front of the crowds and say in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Well, it turns out there was another very significant ceremony that took place during the Festival of Tabernacles, the lamp lighting ceremony. Four huge lamps were lit at the temple And following the lamp lighting, there was dancing all through the night. The dancers held burning torches in their hands, and they sang songs of praise, accompanied by the orchestra of the Levites. And apparently, the light from the temple could be seen across the whole of the city. And that is the context in which Jesus stands and proclaims the words in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 20 tells us where Jesus was when he spoke these words. He was in the temple courts near the place where offerings were put. And commentators tell us That was the area of the temple in which the lamp-lighting ceremony took place. So, just as he did with the water-drawing ceremony in chapter 7, Jesus positions himself at the heart of the celebration of light, and he proclaims himself to be the fulfillment of the celebration. But what exactly is Jesus claiming when he says these words of verse 12? Well, to understand what Jesus is claiming, we need a short history of light in the Bible, starting with the very first words of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. In the very beginning, into the darkness came the light of God. And you and I, as we read that, might think it means God created the sun, moon, and stars. But apparently that is not what we're dealing with in these opening verses of Genesis 1. Because if we read on in the chapter, we find the lights in the sky are not created until verse 14. So in verses 1 to 4, we are talking about a different source of light. This, it seems, is the light of God himself. 
It's been described as the powerful presence and activity of God. Another way to describe it would be the radiance of God's glory. Or the display of his splendor. Before the sun, moon, and stars ever appear in Scripture, we're told the world was lit by God's own light. But if we know the Bible's storyline at all, we know that bright world was soon enveloped in darkness. That came about because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. After that rebellion, the sun carried on shining That light was still there, but the world was filled with the gloom of sin rather than the light of God. And by the time we get to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we find God's people, the Israelites, living with the bitter consequences of that gloom of sin. The book of Exodus opens with the Israelites living in slavery in Egypt. We're told they were groaning in the darkness of their slavery. But into the midst of that darkness came God's light. His powerful presence. One of the Israelites, a man called Moses, saw an extraordinary thing. He saw a bush that was on fire but didn't burn up. And when Moses approached that bush with its fiery light... Moses met there God himself, come to bring his people out of Egypt. And when they did come out, God himself led the people with that same fiery light Moses had seen in the bush. Exodus chapter 13 says, as the people traveled, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of fire to give them light. And that light of God led them all the way to the promised land of Canaan. So from the beginning, the Bible shows whatever the value of the sun in the sky, our true light is God himself. We need the light of his powerful presence. We need his guidance. And the prayers of the Bible speak in those terms. For example, Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 43, the psalmist prays to the Lord, Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. And later in Israel's history, when they fell into ruin eventually and exile because of their sin, The Old Testament prophets brought a promise from God. And we read it earlier this morning in the prophet Isaiah. God sent the promise of a future where the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The God of creation, the God of the exodus, would once again bring the light of his powerful presence to lead his people out of darkness. 
And those Old Testament scriptures help us understand why the people of Israel sang and danced all through the night at the lamplighting ceremony during the Festival of Tabernacles. And those scriptures help us see what Jesus was claiming for himself when he announced to those crowds here in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is claiming to be the powerful presence of God in this world. The radiance of God's glory. Jesus is claiming to be the presence of God that lit the world before the sun was even created. He's claiming to be the presence of God that led the ancient Israelites out of Egypt with a fiery pillar all the way to the promised land. Jesus says he is the fiery pillar come again. To lead God's people to the new creation promised in the Old Testament. Where the Lord will be his people's everlasting light. Jesus is the light of God. And notice who this light is for in verse 12. Jesus does not say, I'm the light of Israel. He says, I'm the light of the world. So there's not one light for the Jews and another light for Muslims and another for Sikhs and another for Rastafarians and another for all those inclusive religious people who want to hedge their bets and not settle for any one light in particular. No, Jesus claims there is one light for the whole world. There's one way out of darkness and it's him. Jesus' claim could not be bigger. And here's the thing about this. If Jesus is the light of the world, he doesn't need anyone else to vouch for him. It's not like the recent leadership election in the Conservative Party where hopeful candidates had to get endorsements from all their friends. It's not like the publishing industry where hopeful best-selling authors get famous people to write recommends on the back of their book. The light of the world doesn't need anyone's endorsement or recommendation. There is no higher authority than the light of the world. What would be the value of an endorsement from a lower authority? If the sun in the sky could give endorsements, what would that endorsement add to the light that was already there before the sun? The ultimate light doesn't need endorsements from any lesser light. If God speaks, what is the value in someone like me, for example, saying, oh, that's good, that is. He's right, you know. God's word doesn't need my endorsement or anyone else's. God himself is the highest authority. 
And that is the point Jesus is making in verses 13 to 20 in this discussion with the Pharisees. In verse 12, Jesus has made the highest possible claim for himself. And in verse 13, we read, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, normally that would be quite true. That is how our courts work. If I make a claim about myself in court, the judge doesn't just take my word for it. He wants witnesses to back up my word, to give it credence. That's how it normally works. But God is the one genuine exception to that. Because his word is necessarily the highest, most trustworthy word there is. He's God. What other word could be higher or more trustworthy than God's word? So if Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and my friend Peter here will back me up on that, or these other 11 disciples of mine will back me up, what could those human witnesses possibly add to Jesus' own word if he's God? And so Jesus says in verse 14, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. What higher testimony could there be than the testimony of the Father and his son Jesus. What other witnesses could Jesus possibly bring forward who would trump his own witness as God the Son, backed up by God the Father? God has a unique authority. The unique authority of the one who was there before creation. The one who will bring about the new creation. So how could Rabbi so-and-so or Professor so-and-so possibly add anything by their word of endorsement? And today, the way to prove the truth of Jesus' words is not to search for the most impressive defender of Jesus. It's not to dredge through YouTube looking for the best argument for Jesus. The one that will answer all your questions and blow away all your doubts. The answer is not to wait for the next celebrity who will endorse Jesus so that you'll know you can trust Jesus because an A-list actor or actress says they follow him. No, the way to prove the truth of Jesus' words is to follow him for yourself. And experience the truth of his words. That whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. If Jesus needed celebrity endorsement to be worth following, he most certainly wouldn't be worth following. If the celebrity's word or the professor's word counts for more than Jesus' word, then that celebrity or professor would be the one to follow. The light of the world doesn't need anyone else's endorsement. And we don't need to look for anyone else to endorse him. We just need to follow him. The point of these verses is that Jesus is the light of God and he needs no green light from anyone else. But even as Christians, we can forget this. When we notice how unpopular it is to follow Jesus, we can start keeping score of how many people give Jesus the thumbs up and how many don't. As if that has any bearing on whether he's worth following. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then the world is in darkness. It can't recognize him. The only way into the light is not to demand that Jesus prove himself. The only way into the light is to take Jesus at his word. John Calvin said, The way forward is to know that this world is in darkness and that we are blind. That's the way forward. When we know that, then we're ready to come to Jesus, the light of the world. And the way to keep going forward as Christians, it's to remember that the world around us is in darkness. To realize that if we turn away from Jesus, we're going back to darkness and blindness. In the second part of this passage, the discussion with the Pharisees continues. But Jesus wants to focus the discussion on the issue of life and death. The point of these verses is that Jesus is the life-giving light. Look at verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. In verse 21, when Jesus says, I am going away, he's talking about his death on the cross. We know that because later down in verse 28, he speaks about being lifted up. And back in chapter 3, Jesus used that same expression to refer to the cross. And where Jesus is going away to is the presence of his Father in heaven. The cross is his mission, and completing his mission means a return to his Father. That's why he says to the Pharisees in verse 21, Where I go, you cannot come. 
Of course they can't go where Jesus is going. He's the light of the world and they are rejecting him. How could they possibly go where Jesus is going? In verse 23, Jesus points out they belong to this world, this world lost in the darkness and blindness of sin. How could they possibly go where Jesus is going? To the world of God's light and purity. But notice, Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees as a challenge. It's an invitation to them. At the end of verse 24, if you do not believe that I am he, the light of the world, you will indeed die in your sins. The implication is, if you do believe I'm the light of the world, you won't die in your sins. If we accept that this world is in darkness, that we're blind, and that Jesus is the life-giving light, then we will receive life. We'll be forgiven of our sin and welcomed in the place where Jesus is going, the world of God's light and purity. And then having told us he's the life-giving light, in verse 28, Jesus says, his light is seen most clearly in his death. He says to the Pharisees in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's Jesus, then you will know that I am He, the light of the world. We've already noticed that earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus' death has been referred to as Him being lifted up. And on one level, it means being physically lifted up, nailed to the beam of the cross, and then raised up high on the cross. But in that ugly event, Jesus was being lifted up in another sense also. He was being displayed for all to see as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The ultimate sacrifice for sin. So as he hung on that wooden pillar, Jesus was being displayed as the new fiery pillar. Remember in the Old Testament, the pillar of God's fiery presence led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he was being displayed as the new fiery pillar who leads God's people out of slavery to sin. who leads them all the way to God's ultimate promised land, the new heaven and earth. So you and I might look at the cross and we might think Jesus' light is being extinguished there. But in fact, the cross is where we see his saving, life-giving light most clearly. The cross is where God's light shines into our darkness, offering us life. And so if you are not a Christian, but you want to know who Jesus is, the cross is the place to look. There's a good reason all four of the New Testament Gospels focus so much on the cross. 
There's a reason why the cross is referred to again and again and again in the New Testament letters. It's not because Christianity is a morbid, gloomy religion. It's because the light of God's love and saving power are seen most clearly in Jesus' death. As Jesus laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice, he was opening the way to God's new creation. All who come and trust in Jesus' sacrifice are coming into the life-giving light of God. And if you are a Christian, consider this. For all eternity you will live by the light of this crucified Lamb. We've seen in the first verses of the Bible how the initial creation was lit not by the sun in the sky, but by God's own powerful presence. The radiance of His glory, the display of His splendor. And the end of the Bible tells us that will be true in God's new creation as well. The book of Revelation describes that future new creation as God's new heaven and earth, also known as the new Jerusalem. And in Revelation chapter 21, the apostle John is given a vision of that eternal city. And he is told this, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So long after this sun has burnt out, the new creation will be lit by God's own light. The Lamb who was slain will shine in that new world. The glory of his saving sacrifice will light up that new world. What that means is here and now, we're to keep our hope fixed on the Son of God who is lifted up on the cross. He is the light for us to follow today and tomorrow. Whatever darkness we go through, he is the light who will guide us through it. He's the one we depend on for the present and for the future. So if our hope has been straying to other places or other people, together as God's people, let's bring our hope back. Let's fix our hope once again on the Son of God who will be our light forever. And let's join together now to praise him as we sing Light of the World. And then, Lord, the light of your love is shining.
Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen.